Welcome to From Cork with Love Adventure, the only programme from Cork, Ireland, in which you can hear what it's like to be Irish in Cork from the point of view of a totally unrepresentative man. This is Paul Amani welcoming you to the latest episode. As I'm setting out to walk with Rebecca Solnit, reading her book, Wanderlust, A History of Walking, The Horses Are Eating Hay. On the right, a brown horse, on the left, a white horse. And in front of me, my dog Louis, a pointer in effect, walking very slowly, as if he was checking to see that there was something to to chase after in front of us. Where were we? Leaving the 18th century, 1709, Anthony Ashley Cooper, Earl of Shaftesbury, leaving him behind and moving on to Horace Walpole. So we're going to go deeper into the English countryside as Rebecca Solnit describes the cultural significance of walking and the social significance of how the landscape had become safer and safer for people as we entered into the 19th century. Here's what Rebecca Solnit has to say. Poetry, painting and gardening are the science of landscape will forever by men of taste be deemed three sisters or the three new graces who dress and adorn nature, famously declared Horace Walpole, the wealthy aesthete who did much to inculcate romantic tastes in his peers. One of the premises of this declaration is that gardening is as much an art as the more traditionally respected practices of poets and painters. And the period was a sort of golden age for attention to gardens, or a kind of age of incubation, in which the taste for nature was hatched out of those gardens, poems and paintings. Another premise is that nature needs to be dressed and adorned, at least in the gardens, and paintings suggested some of the ways in which this could be done. Among the influences on the emerging English landscape garden were the 17th century Italian landscapes of Claude Lorrain, Nicholas Poussin and Salvatore Rocca, with their rolling ground stretching towards far horizons, their clumps of feathery trees framing the distance, their serene bodies of water and their classical buildings and ruins, and in Rocca's case, the cliffs, torrents and bandits that made him the most gothic of the three. We're now going to climb over a gate 
big metal gate and hop ah, onto the ground. Pillared temples and Palladian bridges were added to make English gardens resemble the Italian campaigns. Sorry, make the English gardens resemble the Italian campagna of these paintings and to suggest that England was heir to Rome's virtues and beauties. Quote, all gardening is landscape painting, said Alexander Pope. And people were learning to look at landscape in gardens as they learned to look at landscape in paintings. And though architectural items, ruins, temples, bridges, obelisks, continue to be sprinkled over gardens for many decades, the subject of gardens was becoming nature itself. But a very specific version of nature. Nature as a visual spectacle of plants and water and space. A serene thing to be contemplated serenely. Unlike the formal garden and the painting, which had a single ideal point of view from which they could be regarded, the English landscape garden, quote, asked to be explored. It surprises an unsuspected corners to be discovered on foot, wrote garden historian John Dixon Hunt. Carolyn Birmingham adds in her history of the relations between class and landscape, whereas the French formal garden was based on a single axial view of the house, the English garden was a series of multiple oblique views that were meant to be experienced while one walked through it. End quote. To use anachronistic terms, the garden was becoming more cinematic than pictorial. It was designed to be experienced in motion as a series of compositions dissolving into each other rather than as a static picture. It was now designed aesthetically as well as practically for walkers, and walking and looking were beginning to become linked pleasures. There were other factors in the increasing naturalization of the garden. Perhaps the most important was the equation of the landscape garden with English liberty, the English aristocrats cultivating a taste of nature were, in a sense, politically positioning themselves and their social order as natural, in contrast to French artifice. Now I must... Uh, I must open this gate. I'm in the Irish landscape now. I'm in the Cork landscape now. However much I'm imagining the English landscape or the French landscape. Thus their pursuit of country pastimes, their penchant for portraits of themselves in the landscape, their creation of naturalistic gardens, their cultivation of a taste for landscape, all had a political subtext, as Birmingham has so brilliantly pointed out. <coughs> Yet other influences include reports of Chinese gardens in which the paths and waterways were sinuous and winding, 
the overall effect celebrating rather than subduing natural complexity. Neither the early chinoiserie nor the imitations of nature bore much resemblance to their originals. But the intent was there and evolving. Finally, this changing taste manifests an extraordinary confidence. The formal enclosed garden and the castles are corollaries to a dangerous world from which one needs to be protected literally and aesthetically. As the walls come down, the garden proposes that there is already an order in nature and that it is in harmony with the natural society enjoying such gardens. The growing taste for ruins mountains, torrents, for situations provoking fear and melancholy and for artwork about all these things suggests that life had become so placidly pleasant for England's privileged that they could bring back as entertainment the terrors people had once strived so hard to banish. Two, private experience and informal art were blooming elsewhere notably in the rise of the novel. Here, Louis. There are two horses on the path. By themselves, no riders. And we're going to walk past them slowly. Safely. Aren't we, Louis? These horses are going to ignore you, just as you're going to ignore them. Here goes. We're about 10 feet away from this big horse. Now you have another one. Hello. You're a lovely horse. Right, and there's another one further on. Well, there's only one thing to do. We'll read our way through as we look gingerly ahead. The exemplary garden for this evolution is Stowe in Buckinghamshire. Stowe itself went through most of the phases of the English garden in the 18th century and stands now as a kind of lexicon of 18th century gardening from its temples, grotto hermitage and bridges to its lake and landscaping. It has some of the earliest chinoiserie Hello Pony Right, right. This is uh, some adventure. Okay, Louis, I can let you off the lead now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You didn't really like those massive animals, did you? It has some of the earliest and chinoiserie and Gothic revival architecture in England. Its owner, Viscount Cobham, 
had replaced the formal parlour garden made in 1680 with a far larger formal garden that he slowly revised and erased as the new century advanced. First, the Elysian fields with their temples of British worthies and of ancient and modern virtue mentioned in the preceding chapter were transformed into something with softer, more undulating lines and the rest of the garden eventually followed. Straight walks became serpentine and their walkers no longer promenaded but wandered. Christopher Hussey describes Stowe, the political capital of the Whigs, as transforming politics into garden architecture, loosening the formal landscape design, quote, into harmony with the age's humanism, its faith in disciplined freedom, its respect for natural qualities, its belief in the individual, whether man or tree, and its hatred of tyranny, whether in politics or plantations. End quote. Most of the great landscape architects of the age worked for Cobham, and many of the great poets and writers were among his guests. And the gardens continually expanded, annexing dozens of acres at a time. Within 30 years, summarises one of the gardens' historians, his taste had moved from a preoccupation with regular arrangements of terraced lawns, statues and straight pods, to an essay in three-dimensional landscape painting, the creation of an ideal landscape. End quote. Celebrated in many poems, pictures and journals, Stowe was a central site in the cultural foment, in the cultural f- foment of the era, both as a subject and a retreat. Oh, lead me to the wide extended walks, the fair majestic paradise of Stowe, while there with the enchanted round I walk, the regulated wild, wrote James Thompson. A guest during most of his 1734 and 1735 in the autumn section of his poem, The Seasons. This enormously successful poem, with his blank verse describing the changing year and minor dramas in the landscape, probably did more than any other literary work to inculcate a taste for scenery. God, I must read that poem. Probably did more than any other literary work to inculcate his taste for scenery. In the 19th century, J.M.W. Turner was still appending big chunks of the poem to his paintings. Pope wrote at length of Stowe's glories too, and in a letter described a typical day at Stowe in the 1730s. Everyone takes a different way and wanders about till we meet at noon. Walpole visited Cobham's heir at Stowe in 1770. After breakfast, the party spent the day walking in the gardens or drove about in cabriolets until it was time to dress for dinner. It had become enormous, a place it takes a whole day to explore on foot, and no clear boundary but a ha-ha separates it from the surrounding countryside. 
another gate to open. Another gate guarded by nettles. Come in, Louis. Come on. You come through this gate. These are great gates. Yeah. Yuck. Just getting a little wary. Wary of the. Just being burned. A nettle has got me. That year, the Gothic. Architect Sanderson Miller walked there with various people, including Lancelot Capability Brown, the, land, the landscape architect who was to complete the revolution in garden design with his unadorned expanses of water, trees, and grass. Brown created the Grecian Valley in Stowe, the largest and plainest stretch of the garden, and though it looks wholly natural, the valley itself was dug by hand by many labourers whose views of landscape gardening do not survive. The Brownian garden, having largely banished sculpture and architecture, no longer commemorated human history and politics. Nature was no longer a setting, but the subject. And the walkers in such a garden were no longer being steered towards ready-made reflections on virtue Virgil. They were free to think their own thoughts as they followed the meandering paths, though those thoughts might well be about nature, or rather nature as taught by myriad texts. From being an authoritarian public and essentially architectural space, the garden was becoming a private and solitary wilderness. Not everyone was ready to accept the landscape garden as realised by Brown, that's Kate Bilsey Brown. So Joshua Reynolds, president of the Royal Academy, wrote, Gardening, as far as gardening is an art, or entitled to the appellation, is a deviation from nature. For if the true taste consists, as many hold, in banishing every appearance of art or any traces of the footsteps of man, it would then no longer be a garden. Reynolds was on to something. The garden, in the course of becoming more and more indistinguishable from the surrounding landscape, had become unnecessary. Walpole had said of the landscape architect William Kent that he had, quote, leapt the fence and saw all nature was a garden. If a garden was nothing more than a visually pleasing space in which to wander, then gardens could be found rather than made, and the tradition of the garden walk could expand to become the tourist's excursion. Rather than looking at the work of man, the scenic stroller could look at the works of nature, and to look at nature as a work of art completed a momentous revolution. In Shaftesbury's terms, princely gardens had finally given way to wilderness. The non-human world had become a fit subject for aesthetic contemplation.
The aristocratic garden had begun as part of the fortified castle, and slowly its boundaries had melted away. The melting of the garden into the world is a mark of how much safer England had become, and to a lesser degree much of Western Europe, where the fashion for the English garden soon caught on. Since about 1770, England had undergone a transportation revolution of improved roads, decreased roadside crime, and cheaper fares. Go on, thinking to myself, 1770, just before the American Revolution, and uh, also before the Napoleonic Wars. Since about 1770, England had undergone a transportation revolution of improved roads, decreased roadside crime, and cheaper fares. The very nature of travel changed. Before the mid-18th century, travel accounts have little to say about the land between religious or cultural landmarks. Afterward, an entirely new way of travel arose. In pilgrimage and practical travel, the space between home and destination had become an inconvenience or an ordeal. When this space became scenery, travel became an end in itself, an expansion of the garden stroll. That is to say, the experiences along the way could replace destinations as the purpose of travel. And if the whole landscape was the destination, one arrived as soon as one set out in this world that could be looked at as a garden or a painting. Walking had long been recreational, but travel had joined it, and it was only a matter of time before travelling on foot would itself become a widespread part of the pleasures of scenic travel. It's slowness, finally a virtue. Oh, I just love that. It's slowness, finally a virtue. The point at which a poor poet and his sister might travel across a snowy countryside for the pleasure of looking and walking was drawing near. Afterward, Wordsworth himself was moved to write a guidebook to the Lake District in which he summarised the history traced here. Quote, within the last 60 years, he wrote in 1810, a practice denominated ornamental gardening was at that time becoming prevalent over England in union with the admiration of this art and in some instances in opposition to it had been generated a relish for selected parts of natural scenery and travellers instead of confining their observations to towns manufactories or mines began, a thing till then unheard of, to wander over the island in search of sequestered spots, distinguished for the sublimity or beauty of the forms of nature there to be seen. Wander over the island in search of sequestered spots, distinguished for the sublimity or beauty of the forms of nature there to be seen. So said Wordsworth. And I'm just... The word wilderness comes to me. And there are so many parts of 
the UK that I wished I could have visited and walked on. I thought many times about bagging Monroe's climbing peaks over 300 meters high. I think of Sutherland, the northwest of Scotland, that area that I've never been to at all, above the highlands, if you like, a landscape that is been described as having a particular type of desolation, wilderness, that I found to be just what I wanted. Not all the time. I couldn't live out there. But to visit, to go and enjoy. The sublimity or beauty of the forms of nature there to be seen. This is terrific. To read Rebecca Solnit late on an early September day, late afternoon, about half past five in the afternoon, the sun going down, very slowly, but still halfway down in the sky. It's a great pleasure even to look down at the lush green grass that has grown from stubble over the last six or seven weeks. To walk along here looking at blackberries, some of whom are, or some of which are, are dead starved of water and others of which are red, not yet ripened it's a terrific relaxing way to spend time while my daughter doesn't want to see me at all she doesn't want to see me I'm perfectly happy not to see her happy to just see the dog and the blackberries and the hedgerows. And to be part of the, the slow walk movement. The kind that says you take two or three steps in between stopping to Admiring the, the dog taking exercise. The next section that we will move on to next, because we finished section two of chapter six, is entitled Inventing Scenic Tourism. Inventing Scenic Tourism. The thing about this book is that I, I don't want it to rush. I want it to move slowly forward. There are many more walks and kind types of walks to come, which have nothing to do with the English landscape. I'm quite sure 
somewhere in this book there'll be a reference to Himalayan mountain trails. Walks across the Kalahari. No book about the history of walking would be complete without stuff about the Kalahari. Not that I know a lot about the Kalahari. So there we go. We finished this second section from Wordsworth and we get ready to move on. I just see with words from Oliver Goldsmith. Ah, this kind of pushes a lot of buttons, really. I do hope being the experience of listening to Rebecca Solnit is being a satisfying and educational experience for at least one other person right now or perhaps sometime in the next 20 years. By the time I finished reading this book, I'm probably going to want to send Becca Solnit a, a letter. And the way I'm feeling right now, it wouldn't be an email. It'd probably be a handwritten letter written in fountain pen ink. A history of walking. Perhaps this could be called a slow history of walking. Wanderlust. Thank you for listening. That was from Cork with Love Adventure, sponsored by Nobody. This is your host, Paul Omani, saying I hope it was worth your while listening. Bye for now.